At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 14, Cold War Profiles, Ernst Bevan and Joseph Tito. So in this episode, I wanted to take a closer look at two characters who have been major figures in helping to shape the Cold War, but were not either American or Soviet. We will be examining their lives leading up to the Cold War and how these lives helped to shape the opening stages of the conflict. This is not a definitive account of their lives, but just a basic account of their lives. I have added these profile episodes into the series to provide a little background about major figures throughout the Cold War, to better understand who these people were and their perspectives on issues. Joseph Boraz Tito was a towering figure in Yugoslavian politics for more than 30 years, and even after his death, his legacy is still felt in each of the former Yugoslav republics. He is largely credited, and rightfully so, for keeping Yugoslavia together for so long, for better or for worse. Tito was born Joseph Braz, Tito being an assumed name he used, on May the 7th, 1892, in Kumrovic, a village in the northern Croatia, which at the time was a part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. He was the seventh or eighth child of Franjo Boraz and Marija Nijerzec, his parents having already lost a number of children in early infancy. and In all, only six of their 14 children would make it to adulthood. Tito was raised Catholic. His father was a Croat, while his mother was a Slovene. However, despite his mixed parentage, Tito was considered an ethnic Croat. Tito's father had inherited a farm from his father, but was unable to make a success of farming. Therefore, Tito spent part of his youth raised by his maternal grandparents. Tito's father, according to many accounts, was a drunkard who was constantly in debt and used to make young Tito beg for money. When Tito turned eight, he entered primary school, but only completed four years of school before leaving school in 1905. Because of his poor schooling, Tito was a poor speller for much of his life. After leaving school, he initially worked for a maternal uncle on his farm. In 1907, his father wanted him to immigrate to the United States, but he could not raise the money for the voyage. Young Tito moved south and found work apprenticed to a Czech locksmith for three years, learning the trade. During this period, he was first introduced to Marxism. He was encouraged to, to mark May Day and read The Free World, a socialist newspaper. After completing his apprenticeship in 1910, Tito used his context to gain employment in Zagbra. At the age of 18, he joined the Metal Workers Union and participated in the first labor protest. He also joined the Social Democratic Party of Croatia and Slovenia. From 1911 to 1913, Tito traveled and worked throughout the Austro-Hungarian Empire and learned to speak German and Czech. In May 1913, Tito was conscripted into the Austro-Hungarian Army for his compulsory two years of service. 
He successfully requested that he serve with the 25th Croatian Home Guard Regiment garrisoned in Zagbra. After learning to ski during the winter of 1913-14, he was sent to a school for non-commissioned officers in Budapest, after which he was promoted to sergeant major, a high accomplishment for a man as young as he was. Soon after the outbreak of World War I in 1914, the 25th Croatian Home Guard Regiment marched towards the Serbian border, but Boris was arrested for sedition and imprisoned. Tito was later gave, conf- gave conflicting accounts of this arrest, telling one biographer that he had threatened to desert to the Russians, but also claiming that the whole matter w- arose from a clerical error. A third version was that he had been overheard saying that he hoped the Austro-Hungarian Empire would be defeated. After his acquittal and release, his regiment served briefly on the Serbian front before being deployed to the Eastern Front in Galicia in early 1915 to fight against the Russians. On the 25th of March, 1915, he was seriously wounded and captured during a Russian attack. Now a prisoner of war, Tito was transported east to a hospital established in an old monastery by the Volga River near Kazan. During his 13 months in the hospital, he had bouts of pneumonia and typhoid and learned Russian with the help of two schoolgirls who brought him Russian classics such as Tolstoy. After recuperating in mid-1916, Tio was transported around Russia, working as a POW in various roles. In the chaos after the Russian Revolution of 1917, he eventually walked out of his unguarded POW camp, walking to Petrograd. The July Day demonstrations there had just recently broke out, and Tito had joined in, coming under fire from government troops. The July Days were demonstrations that were held against the provisional government. If you remember from history class, the Tsar had abdicated in February 1917, and a provisional government had been established under the leadership of Alexander Krasinski. This government mistakenly chose to continue Russia's participation in the First World War, but was under increasing strain as the war went badly for the Russians and was itself overthrown by Lenin and the Bolsheviks in November 1917. In the aftermath of the July Day protest and government crackdown, he tried to flee to Finland in order to make his way to the United States, but was stopped at the border. He was arrested along with other suspected Bolsheviks during the subsequent crackdown by the Russian provisional government. He was imprisoned in the Peter and Paul Fortress for three weeks, during which he claimed to be an innocent citizen of Prem. When he finally admitted to being an escaped POW, he was to be returned by train to Siberia, but escaped to Omsk. At one point, police searched the train looking for an escaped POW, but were deceived by Tito and his fluent Russian. In Omsk, the train stopped by local Bolsheviks, who told him that Lenin had seized control of the government. They recruited him into the International Red Guard, which guarded the Trans-Siberian Railway during the winter of 1917-1918. In May 1918, white forces wrested control of the parts of Siberia from Bolshevik forces, and the provisional Siberian government established itself in Omsk, and Tito and his comrades went into hiding. At this time, Tito met a beautiful 14-year-old girl named Pelagia Bulusava, who had hid him and then helped him escape from Omsk. When the Red Army recaptured Omsk from the white forces, he moved back and married her in January 1920. At the time of their marriage, Boris was 27 and she was 15. In the autumn of 1920, he and his pregnant wife returned to his homeland to find that his mother had died and his father had moved to a village near Zagbra. Sources differ over whether Boris joined the Communist Party while in Russia, 
but he stated that the first time he joined the party was in Zargbra after he returned to his homeland. He found odd work and worked for a while as a waiter, uh, but soon became heavily involved in Yugoslavian politics as a member of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, or CPY. The CPY's influence uh, on the political life of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia was growing rapidly. In the 1920 elections, it won 59 seats and became the third strongest party. However, after the assassination of the Yugoslav Minister in the Interior by a young communist on the 2nd of August 1921, the CPY was declared illegal under the Yugoslavia State Security Act of 1921. Life became more difficult as it became more tough for Tito to find work. But with the arrest of much of the party leadership, Tito was able to move up the ranks as the party had gone underground. In 1924, Tito was elected to the party's district committee, but after he gave a speech at a comrade's Catholic funeral, he was arrested when the priest complained. His brush with the law had marked him as a communist agitator, and his home was searched on an almost weekly basis. Tito's young marriage began to suffer as well, as the couple had a few children die in infancy, and his wife eventually left him to return to the Soviet Union after his arrest in 1928. Tito continued to move around Yugoslavia, organizing strikes, joining unions, recruiting people to the party, and being arrested and serving short sentences in prison. Eventually, though, the authorities became fed up and sentenced him to five years in jail. He was finally released from prison in March 1934, but even then, he was subject to orders that required him to live near Kumbruk and report to the police daily. In 1934, the Zagbra Provisional Committee sent Tito to Vienna, where many Central Committee members of the Yugoslavian Communist Party had sought refuge. During his exile, Tito became involved in the international communist movement. In 1935, Tito traveled to the Soviet Union, working for a year in the Balkan section of the Comintern. He was a member of the Soviet Communist Party and the Soviet Secret Police, the NKVD. In 1936, the Comintern sent Comrade Walter, i.e. Tito, back to Yugoslavia to purge the Communist Party there. In 1937, Stalin had the Secretary General of the CPY, Milan Gorek, murdered in Moscow. The same year, Tito returned from the Soviet Union to Yugoslavia after being named by Stalin as the Secretary General of the still outlawed CPY. During this period, he faithfully followed Comintern policy, supporting Stalin's policies and criticizing Western democracies. In 1939, Tito was elected Secretary General of the Comintern. On April 6, 1941, German forces with Hungarian and Italian assistance launched an invasion of Yugoslavia. Tito responded by forming a military committee within the Central Committee of the Yugoslav Communist Party. Attacked from all sides, the armed forces of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia quickly crumbled, and on April the 17th, 1941, after King Peter II and other members of the government fled the country, the remaining representatives of the government and military met with the German officials in Belgrade to surrender. The independent state of Croatia was established as a Nazi puppet state ruled by the Ustache, a militant wing of the Croatian Party of Rights, which inflamed already volatile ethnic tensions, which soon descended into an orgy of ethnic cleansing only intensified by the Nazis. On the 1st of May 1941, Tito issued a pamphlet calling on the people to unite in a battle against the occupation, and on the 27th of June 1941, the Central Committee of the Communist Party of Yugoslavia appointed Tito commander-in-chief of all liberation military forces. 
Tito recruited an ethnically mixed force, distancing himself from the ethnic cleansing and Nazi ideology of superior and inferior races to which the Eustache had subscribed. Moreover, although many of his partisans were communist, Tito's rapidly growing forces included many non-communists as well. His own magnetic personality and the appeal of his political ideas of a federated Yugoslavia to non-Serbian elements attracted many Yugoslav people who were tired of the ethnic tensions of the region which dated back decades. Tito and his guerrillas were successful in gaining control of some areas of central Serbia. However, the Axis mounted a series of offensives intended to destroy the partisans, coming close to doing so in the winter and spring of 1943. Despite the, the setbacks, the partisans remained a credible fighting force, gaining recognition from the Western allies and laying the foundations for the post-war Yugoslavian state. With support and logistics and air power from the Western allies and Soviet ground troops in the Belgrade offensive, the partisans eventually gained control of the entire country and of border regions of Italy and Austria. After the end of the war, the monarchist government in exile and the communists agreed to hold elections in November 1945. Tito and the communists won the election with an overwhelming majority, the vote having been boycotted by the monarchists. During the period, Tito enjoyed massive popular support due to his being generally viewed by the populace as the liberator of Yugoslavia. After the overwhelming electoral victory, Tito was confirmed as prime minister. The country was soon renamed the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. King Peter II was formally deposed by the Yugoslav Constituent Assembly, and the Assembly drafted a new Republican constitution soon afterwards. In the first post-war years, Tito was widely considered a communist leader very loyal to Moscow. Indeed, he was often viewed as second only to Stalin in the Eastern Bloc. In fact, Stalin and Tito had an uneasy alliance from the start, with Stalin considering Tito too independent. If you recall, Tito had worked for Stalin more or less through the 1930s. During the immediate post-war period, Tito's Yugoslavia had a strong commitment to orthodox Marxist ideas. Harsh repressive measures against dissidents were common, including arrests, show trials, forced collectivization, suppression of churches, and religion. He nationalized Yugoslav industry and undertook a planned economy. He didn't attempt to collectivize the small farms, but he forced them under threat of severe penalties to furnish large portions of their produce to the state. Unlike other new communist states in Eastern and Central Europe, Yugoslavia liberated itself from Axis domination with limited direct support from the Red Army. Tito's leading role in liberating the Yugoslavia not only greatly strengthened his position in his party and among the Yugoslav people, but also caused him to be more insistent that Yugoslavia should follow its own interests. In the immediate aftermath of World War II, there occurred several armed incidences between Yugoslavia and the Western Allies. Following the war, Yugoslavia acquired the Italian territory of Istra, as well as the cities of Zarbra and Rizic, Yugoslav leadership looking to incorporate the Trieste into the country as well, which was opposed by the Western Allies. This led to several armed incidences, notably attacks by Yugoslav fighter planes on U.S. transport aircraft, causing bitter criticism from the West. From 1945 to 1948, at least four U.S. aircraft were shot down. Stalin was opposed to these provocations, as he felt the USSR was unready to face the West in open war so soon after the huge losses of World War II, and at the time when the U.S. had operational atomic weapons, whereas the USSR had yet to conduct its first test. 
In addition, Tito was openly supportive of the communist side in the Greek Civil War, while Stalin kept his distance, having agreed with Churchill not to pursue Soviet interests there, although he did support the Greek communist struggle in political, political rhetoric. In 1948, motivated by the desire to create a strong independent economy, Tito molded his economic development plan independently from Moscow, which resulted in a diplomatic escalation followed by a bitter exchange of nasty letters between the two sides. From Stalin's perspective, I'm sure he saw Tito as a former lackey who had done his bidding back in the 30s, so the idea that Tito was somehow his equal was out of the question for Stalin. Stalin then attempted to overthrow Tito unsuccessfully as Tito's secret police were too strong and he enjoyed widespread popular support. Stalin responded by expelling Tito from the Common Forum, the successor to the Comintern. It was sort of like the Club for International Communists. One significant consequence of the tensions arising between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union was Tito's decision to enact large-scale repression against any real or alleged opponent of his own. This repression was not limited to known and alleged Stalinists, but included also members of the Communist Party or anyone exhibiting sympathies towards the Soviet Union. Tito's estrangement from the USSR enabled Yugoslavia to obtain U.S. aid as we saw in Episode 9. Still, he did not agree to align with the West, which was a common consequence of accepting American aid at the time for many countries. After Stalin's death in 1953, relations with the USSR were relaxed, and he began to receive aid as well from the Soviet Union. In this way, Tito played East-West antagonism to, its, to his advantage. Instead of choosing sides, he was instrumental in kickstarting the Nine Align movement, which would function as a third way for countries interested in staying outside of the East-West divide. In 1961, Tito co-founded the movement with Egypt's Gabnel Nasser, India's Nehru, Indonesia's Sirkano, and Guyana's Kwame Nkorma, in an action called the Initiative of Five, thus establishing strong ties with third world countries. This did much to improve Yugoslavia's diplomatic position, and on the 1st of September 1961, Tito became the first Secretary General of the Non-Aligned Movement. The Non-Aligned Movement advocated a middle way between the Marxist-Leninism of the Soviet Union or the capitalist consumerism of the United States, an organization that we will be examining in a later episode. Tito was notable for pursuing a foreign policy of neutrality during the Cold War and for establishing close ties with the developing world. His public speeches often re reiterated that policy of neutrality and cooperation with all countries would be a natural as long as these countries did not use their influence to pressure Yugoslavia to take sides. In 1967, Tito became active in promoting a peaceful resolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict. His plan called for the Arabs to recognize the state of Israel in exchange for territories Israel had gained. Post-1949, relations with the United States and Western European nations were generally cordial. Not only that, Yugoslavia developed diplomatic relations with right-wing anti-communist governments such as Uruguay. Yugoslavia also provided military aid and arms to staunchly anti-communist regimes such as Gua that of Guatemala. One notable exception to Yugoslavia's neutral stance towards anti-communist countries was Chile under Pinochet. Yugoslavia was one of many countries which severed diplomatic relations with Chile after Salvador Allende was overthrown. Yugoslavia had a liberal travel policy permitting foreigners to freely travel through the country and its citizens to travel worldwide, whereas in most communist countries like the Soviet Union, 
China or Eastern Europe, internal travel was restricted, let alone international travel. A number of Yugoslavian citizens even worked throughout Western Europe. In January 1967, Yugoslavia was the first communist country to open its borders to all foreign visitors and abolish visa requirements. In 1950, Yugoslavia introduced self-management, a type of cooperative, independent socialist experiment that introduced profit-sharing and workplace democracy in previously state-run enterprises, which then became the direct social ownership of the employees. On January 13, 1953, they established the Law on Self-Management as the basis of the entire social order in Yugoslavia. By the 1960s, reforms encouraged private enterprise and greatly relaxed restrictions on religious expression, and the Yugoslavian standard of living was somewhat higher than that of Eastern Europe. For a period in the 1960s and 1970s, some intellectuals in the West saw Tedio's model of market socialism as representing a point to which the Soviet and Western economic systems would converge over time. The Yugoslavian economy was also propped up by a huge amount of public debt, which began to be a problem in the 1970s. After Tito's death in 1980, the country ran into a deep economic crisis marked by significant unemployment and inflation. The country could not repay the massive debts accumulated between 1961 and 1980. Between 1961 and 1980, external debt of Yugoslavia increased exponentially at an unsustainable pace of over 17% per year. Even today, the former Yugoslav republics' budgets are still under the pressure of the debt contracted during Tito's presidency. However, despite its more liberal policies, Yugoslavia still remained an authoritarian state. According to one study, only the Soviet Union had more political prisoners than Yugoslavia. As the head of a highly centralized and at times oppressive regime, Tito wielded tremendous power in Yugoslavia with his authoritarian rule administered through an elaborate bureaucracy which routinely suppressed human rights. The main victims of the repression were during the first few years uh, were known as alleged Stalinists were arrested, but during the following years, even some of the most prominent among Tito's collaborators were arrested. The repression did not exclude intellectuals and writers, or anyone for that matter, that publicly criticized Tito and or the regime. Even after the reforms of the 1960s, the Communist Party continued to alternate between liberalism and repression. Tito's secret police was molded on the Soviet KGB. Its members were ever-present and often acted extraditiously, with victims including middle-class intellectuals, liberals, and Democrats. Tito's greatest strength in the eyes of many was his ability in maintaining unity throughout the religiously and culturally diverse country. It was Tito's call for unity and related methods that held together the people of Yugoslavia. This ability was put to the test several times during his reign, notably during the Croatian Spring, which called for economic and political reforms. The government suppressed both public demonstrations and dissenting opinions within the Communist Party. Despite this suppression, many of the protesters' demands were later enacted within the new constitution, heavily backed by Tito himself against opposition from the Serbian branch of the party. Tito's Yugoslavia was based on respect for nationality, but Tito ruthlessly purged any nationalism that threatened the Yugoslav Federation. However, the contrast between treatment given to some ethnic groups and the severe repression of others was sharp. Yugoslav law guaranteed nationalities the use of their language, but for ethnic Albanians, the assertion of their ethnic identity was severely limited. Almost half of all the political prisoners in Yugoslavia were ethnic Albanians jailed for asserting their ethnic identity. 
By the early 1970s, Tito began to reduce his role in the day-to-day affairs of the state. He continued to travel abroad and receive foreign visitors going to Beijing in 1977 and reconciling with a Chinese leadership that had once branded him a revisionist. Despite being married, Tito carried on numerous affairs and was married several times over the course of his life. As the president, Tito had access to extensive state-owned property associated with his office and maintained a lavish lifestyle with 32 opulent mansions and villas. He even had a special island residence where he had a private zoo, sort of like Michael Jackson style. He maintained a presidential yacht, a Boeing 727, and a train. Tito became increasingly ill over the course of 1979. On January the 7th and again on January the 11th, 1980, Tito was admitted to the hospital for circulation problems in his legs. His left leg was amputated soon after due to arterial blockages and he died of gangrene. His funeral drew many world statesmen based on the number of, or of attending politicians and state delegations. At the time, it was the largest state funeral in history. This concentration of dignitaries wouldn't be unmatched until the funeral of John Paul II in 2005 and the memorial service of Nelson Mandela in 2013. Those who attended included four, four kings, 31 presidents, six princes, 22 prime ministers, and 47 ministers of foreign affairs. They came from both sides of the Cold War, from 128 different countries out of the 154 UN members at the time. At the time of his death, speculation began about whether his successors could continue to hold Yugoslavia together. Ethnic divisions and conflict grew and eventually erupted into a series of Yugoslav wars a decade after his death. Tito was buried in, the, in a mausoleum in Belgrade called the House of Flowers, and numerous people visit the place as a shrine to better times, although it no longer holds a guard of honor. If you're interested in learning more about the rise of communist Yugoslavia in the early Cold War, check out Episode 10, Cold War in the Mediterranean, Part 2, 1945-1950. to I want to take a quick break here and thank you for, again for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel free to share the show on social media or tell your friends to check us out or give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you'd like to financially support the show, support us through Patreon. Any donation is greatly appreciated. The website is www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. In other podcast news, I want to thank David Wallop for contributing to the show, and I would like to thank all those who have filled out the survey on our website. We are going to be making some changes from your advice. One of the first things we have done is re-record our first two episodes, which were a bit shaky given that podcasting was new to us at the time. So check it out, and thank you for your feedback, and keep it coming. Now back to the show. Another figure who has been mentioned from time to time in the series thus far has been the British Foreign Minister Ernst Bevan. Bevan didn't begin his career in politics until the last 10 years of his life. Before that, he had been heavily involved in the labor movement. Bevan's mother, Diana Telbud, had married a farmer, William Bevan, in 1864 and had six children with him, moving from her hometown to South Wales in 1870. For reasons that remain a mystery to us, she returned home alone, pregnant in 1877 with Ernst, and claimed to be a widow. His father remains unknown to us, as from the records it appears that Ernst was probably an illegitimate child, as his mother did not list his father's name in the parish records. From what we understand, Bevan 
Bevan's youth was spent in poverty, while his mother worked odd jobs and accepted donations from the church to support her family. Despite this, it was said that she cared for her family greatly and loved her children. In later life, Bevan always kept a picture of her on his desk. After his mother's death in 1889, the young Bevan lived with his mother's half-sister's family. He had very little formal education, having briefly attended two village schools and then Hayward School, but leaving in 1892. Bevan, oddly despite his love for his mother, never stayed in touch with his siblings and eventually lost touch with them. At the age of 11, he went to work as a laborer, then as a truck driver delivering mineral water in Bristol, where he joined the Bristol Socialist Society. Moving up the ranks, in 1910, he became secretary of the Bristol branch of the Docker, Dockers Union, and in 1914, he became a national organizer for the union. Bevan was very interested in politics and religion from a young age, attending sermons and political lectures when possible. As a young man, he was active in the Baptist church and started attending socialist lectures in the early 1900s. These meetings and sermons formed much of Bevan's worldview and taught him how to become a public speaker. He came to believe in the gradualist philosophy of Marxism that through worker organization and democratic government, the workers could take control of the industries that they worked in and eventually take control of their own lives. Bevan was a physically huge man, strong and by the time of his political prominence, very heavy. He spoke with a strong West Country accent, so much so, much so that at one occasion listeners had problems understanding him, especially for words like you or I. In 1922, Bevan was one of the founding leaders of the Transport and General Workers Union, TGWU, which was soon became Britain's largest trade union. Upon his election as the union's general secretary, he became one of the country's leading labor leaders and their strongest advocate within the Labor Party. Politically, he was on the right wing of the Labor Party, strongly opposed to communism. Bevan was a trade unionist who believed in getting material benefits for his members through direct negotiations with strike action to be used as a last resort. Bevan believed that the capitalists and business leaders were on average practical, reasonable men and could be negotiated with to achieve better conditions for the workers while at the same time not hurting industry or profits. Moreover, Bevan didn't see the main opponents of labor as business or factory owners, but as the banks and people who worked in finance. Bevan did, though, unfortunately have some anti-Semitic beliefs, claiming that the real villains of capitalism were the Jews. Quote, it is the Shylock versus the people, close quote. He told a Labor Party meeting in 1931. Quote, with the Shylocks getting the pound of flesh every time, close the quote. During the 1930s, with the Labor Party split and weakened, Bevan cooperated with the conservative-dominated government on practical issues, but during this period, he became increasingly involved in foreign policy. He was a firm opponent of fascism and of British appeasement of the fascist powers. In 1940, Winston Churchill formed an all-party coalition government to run the country during the crisis of World War II. Churchill was impressed by Bevan's opposition to trade union pacifism and, the, the, and his appetite for work and appointed Bevan to the position of Minister for Labor and National Service. As Bevan was not actually an MP at the time, to remove the resulting constitutional anomaly, a parliamentary position was hurriedly found for him, and Bevan was elected unopposed to the House of Commons as a member of Parliament. 
The Emergency Powers Defense Act gave Bevin complete control over the labor force and the allocation of manpower, and he was determined to use this unprecedented authority not just to help win the war, but also to strengthen the bargaining position of trade unions in the post-war future. During the war, Bevin was responsible for diverting nearly 48,000 military conscripts to work in the coal industry. These workers became known as Bevin's Boys, while using his position to secure significant improvements in wages and working conditions for working-class people. He also drew up the demobilization scheme that ultimately returned millions of military personnel and civilian workers into, peace, into the peacetime economy. Bevin remained Minister of Labor until 1945, when Labor left the coalition government. On VE Day, he stood next to Churchill looking down on the crowd on Whitehall. After the Labor victory over Churchill and the Conservatives in 1945, Bevan was appointed foreign minister in the Attlee government. Bevan was a little out of place in his new role, as many of the members of the British Foreign Service had graduated from Britain's top schools like Cambridge, LSE, and Oxford, where Bevan had no formal education. Nevertheless, he ended up getting on very well with the staff and the officials at the foreign ministry, mainly because many said that Bevan was above all a likable guy. He took their advice and opinions seriously and appreciated and respected the hard work they were engaged in. Bevan, despite his political and organizational skills, had weaknesses, the biggest being his lack of any foreign service. The other be being that because of his limited schooling, many said that he read slowly and wrote with great difficulty. After the war, Great Britain faced numerous challenges. Great Britain had come out of the Second World War a junior partner of the United States, and struggled financially to maintain its position as a leading world power. Technologically and militarily, Great Britain, although not a superpower like the United States or the Soviet Union, still remained one of the world's great leading powers. Most importantly, the imperial ethos of the British remained intact. By the 1950s, the British Empire had been a constant in international affairs the last 400 years. However, Great Britain faced problems in their colonies, especially India and Palestine. Financially, the cost of the war had virtually bankrupted the British Empire. By the end of the conflict, Britain's debt exceeded 200% of GDP. Britain had an amassed an immense debt of £21 billion, or roughly $40 trillion in 2015 dollars, much of which was held in foreign hands, with around $3.4 billion being owed overseas, mainly to creditors in the United States a sum which represented around one-third of annual GDP. Even at the end of the war, Britain re needed American financial assistance, and in 1945, Britain took a loan for $586 million in 1945 dollars. In addition, a further $3.7 billion line of credit, the debt was, also was to be paid off in 50 annual repayments commencing in 1950. Some of these loans were only paid off in the early 21st century. On the 31st of December 2006, Britain made a final payment of about $83 million and thereby discharged the last of its war debt loans to the United States. Evan was unsentimental about the British Empire in places where the growth of nationalism had made direct rule no longer practical, and was part of the cabinet which approved a speedy British withdrawal from India in 1947 and from neighboring colonies. He did, however, support Great Britain's continued influence in the Middle East and Great Britain's colonies in East Africa. After the war, Britain helped France and the Netherlands to recover its Far East empires, hopeful that this could lead towards the formation of a third superpower bloc between the USSR and the United States. 
Most importantly, Bevan believed that the British Empire was a force for good in the world. Bevan remained a determined anti-communist and a strict critic of the Soviet Union. He argued in autumn 1945 against recognition of the new Soviet-sponsored governments in the Balkans. In 1946, during a conference, the Soviet Foreign Minister Molotov repeatedly attacked British proposals whilst defending Soviet policies, and in total frustration, Bevan stood up and launched towards him the minister while shouting, I've had enough of this, eh? before being restrained by security. Bevan was a strong supporter of American foreign policy in the early years of the Cold War and a leading advocate for British involvement in the Korean War. Two of the key institutions of the post-war world, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the Marshall Plan for aid to post-war Europe, were in considerable part the result of Bevan's efforts during these years. Secretary, secretly, Attlee and Bevan also worked towards uh, the decision to build a British atomic bomb. His health failing, Bevan suffered from angina, uh, which is caused by heart disease. He suffered a heart attack in 1949, and Bevan reluctantly allowed himself to become Lord Privy Seal in March 1951, passing away shortly after this. I want to thank you for listening to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 14. Check out our next episode on November the 1st, where we will be examining the early years of the NATO alliance. We will take a look at the different motives for the nations to join, an early NATO strategy about how to deal with the Soviet invasion of Western Europe, including the planned use of atomic weapons. Don't forget, if you enjoy the show, to let your friends know about us. If you don't have a lot of friends that into history, but still want to help us, give us a positive review on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. As always, of course, if you want to make a financial contribution to the supporting the show, please go through our Patreon on our website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Any donation size is accepted and appreciated, and if you have a moment, fill out our survey there so you can help us to bring you a better show. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.